Father, we thank you so much for the way you've orchestrated events to make possible this worship service. Every week, Father, we take for granted that at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning we'll roll in and a service will materialize. And Father, we know that uh, it is only by your gracious provision, and your guidance, by your leading by the Holy Spirit that we even have an opportunity to do what we do. We thank you, Father, that each week you work all the details so that our building is available the men and women who serve us are available, and those who come in, in the desire to hear your word and to worship you are also obedient to be here. Father, we thank you that all those things are made possible so that we may enjoy the company of other believers, the fellowship, and the time in worship and the word. Father, we want to make sure as we come to you each week with a desire to hear your word that we do come, Father, with a right heart. Father, we know that uh, there is no way we can approach you in our own merit. We come merely because we have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. And with that washing of the blood, we now can approach you boldly. We ask, Father, that we never take that for granted either. And that we never take for granted, Father, your call of obedience and of holiness. That our desire, our heart's desire, as you've given it to us, Father, should be to approach the study of your word with an a true intention, Father, to let it take roost in our hearts and to change us and to live by it, to live according to your word. I do pray, Father, that as we've studied and will continue to study, that we will feel a desire, Father, to live it out. In all that we say and do, as you bring it back to our minds in the moment, we will uh, crucify our flesh, Father, and give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit so that our lives may be pleasing to you. I pray, Father, that as we open your word today, that would be the effect it might have on all of us. And I pray, Father, that the word would be spoken with a true desire to reveal it as it was intended. Not colored by my perceptions, Father, not manipulated before my own selfish desires, but rather, Father, to be transparent before you so that the word is spoken in the way you would desire it, according to your will, and to do your work. Let that be how we use your word this morning, Father. In all these things, we give you glory and praise and thanks and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 10. Last week, if you remember, we stopped really in the midst of the very end of the chapter. There's a fairly well-known parable that we ended uh, in. We read it through last week, but we really didn't teach it all the way through. That's what we want to do this week. It's that parable of the lawyer who stands up and tests Jesus by asking him, what are the greatest of the commandments? And more specifically, how do I obtain eternal life? We introduced that passage last week. We didn't complete it, as I said. We'll do that today. And when we introduced it, we mentioned that this lawyer who stands up before Jesus is a good example of the kind of Jew that Paul describes in chapter 10 of Romans. That zealous Jew, the one who is zealous, but his zealousness is not in accordance with the knowledge of the word. He is Zealous for the wrong thing, in other words. He is zealous to enforce and embrace the smallest detail within the law, but not appreciate its purpose in being given. We have a phrase for that in our culture. We call it not seeing the forest for the trees. And that's effectively the problem of this lawyer and, for, the, for that matter, many of the religious leaders of the day. They understood the details, but they couldn't see the big picture. And this man is ex essentially a perfect example of that kind of of zealousness, Paul describes in chapter 10. So it's going to be an excellent opportunity for us today as we study through the end of chapter 10 to really understand how it is that the law could be misused in the day of Jesus, 
how it could misguide so many people in the day of Jesus and yet not be the problem in and of itself, of course, but rather simply be a tool manipulated by the evil heart of men. So let's go into chapter 10 again today. Let's begin by rereading effectively those verses that I read last week so that we can see again the full context of this parable. We'll start in verse 25. Chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put, them on, put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. As we said last week, this lawyer, this man who is an expert in the law of Moses, stands up. And he stands up expressly for the purpose of tearing down Jesus. That's what's meant when Luke says he stood up to test Jesus. It's not a genuine desire to know something he doesn't know. It's an attempt to discredit Jesus in front of the crowd. And the question on its face seems legitimate enough, doesn't it? You wouldn't necessarily know it's a test simply by the the nature of the question. How do I inherit eternal life? That's a question you and I have asked, no doubt, at some point in our life or Every man or woman should at least understand the answer to. So the question itself is not the problem. But this was a favorite question of the religious leaders of their day. I have to give you some sense of how religious leaders of that day went about being who they were. How they entertained themselves, if nothing else. In that day, they used to spend countless hours essentially debating and discussing ideas of this nature. You might compare it to some degree to how the the Greeks and the Greek philosophers used to spend their time. If you've read the book of Acts, you notice that Paul would come into Athens and he noticed that men of of renown in in philosophical circles, men who were considered wise, would sit around all day debating issues of life and and, uh, esoterics of philosophy. That was something that was considered an appropriate use of your time if you were a wise man in that society. One of their favorite questions was, how do you obtain eternal life? You know, there's a whole set of these questions that which of the commandments is the greatest? Uh, How do I obtain eternal life? There are these questions that would just consume them because the answers didn't seem to be possible. It almost seemed to be an impossible question to answer. For all their knowledge of the law, remember, these men grew up memorizing what we today call the Old Testament. Memorized it. There's a story I tell of a man who's a converted Jew today, a Messianic Jew, Dr. Fruchenbaum, Arnold Fruchenbaum, and he tells the story of his father, who was a man in his day back in the first half of the 20th century who was 
a rabbi, but he was more than a rabbi. He was a rabbi. And what a rabbi is, is essentially like the equivalent of a cardinal in the Catholic Church. They had a responsibility for a whole region of the world in the hierarchy of rabbis. And they're so well trained, he said, that by the time he reached adulthood, the test to see if he were qualified to be a rabbi was they would take the Bible and they would hammer a nail through it cover to cover so that it was closed with a nail sticking through the whole book. And based on where they hammered the nail, the place on the cover, this man who was taking the test would have to recite every word that the nail touched through the entire Bible without opening the book. They had memorized it to the extent they knew its position on the page. Now, what's remarkable to me is they memorized it to that extent. And that's not new, by the way. That's an ancient tradition. They memorized it to that extent, and yet they had not found universal agreement on how to obtain eternal life. I mean, if there isn't a better example of not seeing the forest for the trees, they understood the words to that degree, but they couldn't understand the meaning. Because as we know, according to Scripture, without the Holy Spirit telling you what it means, it will never make sense. It is simply knowledge rattling around in your head. That fact alone, the fact that they could know the word so well and yet not know it, is a good indicator of how these men were actually misusing what they knew. Because they didn't understand its true meaning, they chose to use it for their own false and evil purposes. So these false leaders, they were fascinated with questions like how to obtain salvation or similar questions like the one that the lawyer in Mark 12 asked Jesus when he says which commandment was the greatest. This is a common pattern for them to try to trap Jesus. This never-ending picking apart of the law is really just a natural consequence of who they were and what they thought. Now, I also want you to remember, they had turned the law, therefore, into a burden. It had become a yoke that they wrung around the necks of the people, a yoke they could not bear, a burden that was too great, and it constantly left the people feeling persecuted and outside of God's, glory, uh, outside of God's pleasure or grace, never able to please God, because they could never keep all the minutia of the law the way the leaders had prescribed that it had to be kept. Remember, we read a few chapters earlier in Luke when the disciples are moving through the the grain on a Sabbath and they're accosted by the Pharisees because they're picking heads of grain. Remember that? That whole issue arose out of the fact that they saw picking heads of grain as winnowing and harvesting on a Sabbath, so they were doing work. That's how picky, that's how minute they had become in applying the law. So sooner or later, these zealots, as Paul calls them in chapter 10 of Romans, are going to encounter a situation where the law seems to contradict itself. Now, how do they get to that place? Well, if you break the law down and start to misapply it in these minute ways, sooner or later, you're going to run into a situation where you've interpreted one law a certain way and another law a certain way, and those two interpretations collide. They seem to command you to do opposite things. And so it was in those points of contention that they would sit around and debate all day. Well, which of the commandments is greatest? Like, for example... The requirement to honor your mother and father. But then there's also the requirement not to bear false witness, not to lie. So what happens if your father asks you to lie about aunt and uncle's dinner that they gave you? Don't tell them you hated it, son. Or what about the birthday gift you thought was a waste of time? Well, make sure you tell them you loved it. Well, wait a minute. You're telling me to lie, but you're telling but I have to honor my mother and father? Wait a minute. There's a conflict. It seems to be a conflict in the law. How do I resolve those two conflicts? Well, we would understand based on the Holy Spirit how to go through a situation like that and understand what is the loving thing to do. How do we respond in love to God and in love to our neighbor? But they weren't interested in that kind of God-given insight. They wanted it to be something black and white they could resolve in these debates. 
And because these things didn't seem to have an easy answer, they just enjoyed the debate. It was a power struggle, if you will. And they had created countless such conflicts for themselves. And they enjoyed the debate around them. And one of them was, what is our source of salvation? How can we be saved? And you understand now how they'd have that question, right? Because if they saw doing the law as a means of salvation, which it's not, and yet they recognized it's impossible to do it perfectly, anyone with a rational mind is going to appreciate that. Well, it seems like a conflict. Do the law to be saved, but I can't do the law. How am I saved? And that was the reason they asked the question they did to Jesus. What do I have to do to obtain eternal life? It's like the the old questions like what came first, the chicken or the egg. It's a question that nobody assumes has a good answer, so I throw it out at somebody who presumes to be a teacher, and then I'm going to watch and see what they do with it. And as they stumble over themselves, trying to answer a question no one can answer, they look like a fool. That's the reason he said this asked this question. The lawyer, though, gets something he didn't expect. He gets a response from Jesus that says, what does the law tell you? In other words, you stake a claim to this answer. What do you think it means before you ask me? And as a teacher, as a rabbi, he had a right to do that, to place the question back in the lap of a student. And the lawyer answers from Scripture, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which itself is taken from God's introduction to the restating of the law to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. So if you know the history of the nation of Israel, they got the law in Exodus. It's restated to them, effectively, in Deuteronomy, sort of as a second chance. You said you wanted to do it, but are you really sure you want to do it? Let's present it again through Moses and make sure you really understand what you're signing up for here. And in the restating of the law, at the very beginning, God uses this statement. In chapter 6, verse 5, before he restates the law, he kind of introduces it by saying... Uh, Your God is one. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That that is sort of his way of summing up what he's about to give them in the law. And then the lawyer also answers from Leviticus 19.16 when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That part of the law in Leviticus is a summary of the requirements regarding how people are to treat one another. If you go to Leviticus, that section in Leviticus is where you see God sort of lay out all the rules for how men and women are to treat one another. And and in that part of Leviticus, God sums up that piece by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Which is why Jesus says all the commandments can be hung on those two. All the law about how to respond to God can be summed up in how God himself summed it up. And all the law with respect to how to treat one another can be summed up the way God summed it up in Leviticus. And so the lawyer is perceptive enough to have picked up on those details, and he says, essentially, the correct answer. So whether by chance, whether by insight through the Holy Spirit, we don't know, but he gives the correct response. So all that's remaining for Jesus to say is, okay, do it. Now, before we look at the lawyer's reaction, I want you to ask an obvious question for me. Is Jesus telling us this is how you work your way to heaven? In other words, the question was, how do I obtain eternal life? Jesus just said, do those two things and you'll have eternal life. Did he just give us a prescription then for working our way to heaven effectively? For example, could someone deny Jesus as their Lord and yet do these two commandments and therefore be saved? Well, the answer is obviously no. And the easiest way to prove that is to simply to recognize that it's impossible to do these two commandments. That was what made it so tough for the lawyer. The lawyer says, how do I obtain eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? He gives an answer that's impossible to do. And then what does Jesus say? Well, then do it. Do you see how that threw the lawyer off? 
Because what the lawyer was thinking is I'm giving an answer that is impossible. I'm telling him the answer knowing that everyone has already decided this is impossible. So he appears to be trapping Jesus when Jesus turns it right back around and says, okay, well, if that's the answer, go do it. And that leaves the lawyer with very few places to go. No one has ever lived the law in the case of these two commandments. No one except Christ himself has ever lived out those two commandments perfectly. You can't. And so if they're the requirement for salvation, then no one can be saved if doing those two things were the requirement for salvation. But since men are being saved, there must be more to the answer than just doing those two commandments, surely. And that was the purpose in the answer. If the answer leads you to a roadblock, a dead end, then you come back to the person who gave you that answer and say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't work. So now what? But the lawyer doesn't do that. Though that is what God is expecting, that is what God is calling men to do. In recognizing the impossibility of working your own salvation, you come back to him and say, well, what next? Do you have another option? Is there plan B if that one isn't possible? And that's, of course, when the gospel message becomes the answer. Let's look at those commandments again for a moment. For example, in the first one, we're told, love your God with all your heart. Love your God with all your heart. Jesus states that if you do that, if you want to obtain eternal life, God requires that we love him with our entire heart. Loving God with our entire heart. What does that look like? Well, in part, it includes loving his son. In John chapter 5, verse 37, listen to what Jesus said. The Father who sent me has testified of me. And he's speaking here to the Pharisees. He says, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I did not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. So against these very same type of men, Jesus in chapter 5 of John says, first of all, to love God is to love the one he sends. You don't love me, you don't love God. And I know you do not have the love of God in you. So these men were not able to keep the commandment because they didn't have the love of God in them. But look at it from the other perspective. To love God with your whole heart, according to that commandment, includes the requirement that you love him who he sends. So right away we begin to see that commandment pointing us to the gospel. To love God with our whole heart, as the commandment requires, actually drives us to loving his son, because if you love him, you'll love the one he sends, according to Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 23, he adds this. Jesus answered them, again, talking to the Pharisees, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word, and the word which you heard is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So furthermore, if you want to love God, then you're not just going to love his words, but you're going to love the son's words as well, because they're one and the same. You're going to abide in his word, in Christ's word. So those who truly have a love for God, according to that commandment, you think you're working yourself to heaven, keeping those commandments? Well, here's your test. To truly love God means, on the one hand, you have to have a love for those who he sends, for his son specifically. Secondly, you have to hear the word of Christ and abide in it. Abide here means believe it. Believe the word of Christ. Now look a little further in, in Luke 10, verse 27. In that same verse, he says, love your God with all your mind. Let's test that one for just a moment. 
Mark's translation actually uses the word understanding. Dianalia in the Greek can mean mind or more generally understanding. So praise God, believe God, love God with all your understanding would be another way to translate it. So this is an important detail because it's really a, a hallmark, a foundation stone for what we do here. Why we do this here, why we aren't all just in another church this morning somewhere else in San Antonio. Why? Because we take seriously, I hope, the commandment to love your God with all your mind and all your understanding, which means specifically this is not some emotional response to some abstract idea of God. No, we are here because we're not in a religious trance. We're not in some kind of mystical moment. We actually bring our minds into the room. We don't check them at the door. We open up God's Word and we test what we read and what we hear and what we're told in this study and elsewhere against what we see in the Word. And we worship Him in an understanding of what He gave us to know. Our opportunity for eternal life is dependent in part upon loving God with our minds through a clear understanding of His Word. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 10:17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Our ability to even be in the family of God is dependent to, to an extent on what we understand about God, who we think he is and what we know of his word. And the lawyers and the Pharisees failed this test. There's another place, one more place I'll take you in John, John 8. Listen to this exchange. See if this doesn't also illustrate how this lawyer and others like him failed this test. John 8:42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar, the father of lies. Because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. These men could not inherit eternal life because they would not love God with all their mind, with their understanding of who he was, because they would not hear the word of God. The word meaning, in this case, specifically the words Christ spoke in that moment. And that's what Paul means in chapter 10 of Romans when he says we have faith from hearing the word of God. And then lastly, just the second commandment. Let's touch on that for just a moment. This love your neighbor as yourself commandment. Well, certainly that seems a little bit more possible. We should be able to keep that commandment, shouldn't we? Just turn to everyone we know and love them as ourselves. And it's really just an extension of the first. So why would it not be easy? Why can we not do it? Well, in order to do it, you have to be changed. You have to be changed by the love of God, so then you have the capacity to truly love somebody else as yourself. John 13, 35, one quick verse. Paul, uh, Jesus says this, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you, do, you, do you know the significance of that? The way you're showing your Christian walk, most clearly according to Christ, is in how you treat one another. In how we treat one another. That is our best, surest way to demonstrate the love of God in us. So in his answer to the lawyer, Jesus did not present this as a work. He didn't come up to him and say, okay, go do this, expecting him to do it. No, to the contrary, his statement reflects the impossibility of achieving salvation in your own effort. 
But the irony here is, he was in fact teaching how eternal life can be received. You do those two commandments in order to receive eternal life. But the difference is, you don't do them in your own power, you do them according to faith. In other words, having come to faith, I now have the capacity to actually love God with my mind. I understand, for example, the Word of God, where I wouldn't have before. I now have a capacity to actually love Him in the sense of the Word as He intends it, loving those who He sends, loving Him for who He is. I actually have this strength now by the power of the Holy Spirit to respond in my life according to that love. I finally have the capacity to love somebody else who is otherwise unlovable. You remember, he says, it's easy for someone to love their friends. Go love your enemy if you want to really show that you're somebody special. If you want to show righteousness. The point being here that I'm not doing it perfectly. I don't have to because I've been saved by faith. But yet those two commandments are still a calling on the life of a Christian as a response to our faith. So in one sense, yes, it's an impossibility. But on the other hand, it is the inevitability of someone who comes to belief. And in that way, he was giving the correct answer. But without faith, none of it makes any sense. Without the faith component, faith in Christ's sacrifice, then you won't be able to do it for the one hand, on the one hand. Secondly, you won't understand why you can't do it. You won't understand how you are to truly be saved. The heart's changed by the power of the Holy Spirit is a prerequisite to please God and to do those things. But the lawyer, as we said, couldn't get it. So in verse 29, Luke says this lawyer still wished to justify himself. What that means is to make himself look righteous. Now, why does he feel the need to suddenly make himself look righteous? Remember what we just said Jesus did to the man? He just said, oh, you want eternal life? Go do these things. Things that he had already decided, that the community had already decided, couldn't be done. So the lawyer's standing there a bit embarrassed in front of this crowd because Jesus has effectively said, you can't inherit eternal life. And what does a lawyer do when he's boxed into a corner like that? What does a lawyer do when he's trapped and, and feels like he's losing the argument? Well, naturally, he tries to change the terms of the discussion. You know, he tries to equivocate. This is what lawyers do. This is what we all do, frankly, if we're trying to make excuses for ourselves. He looks for loopholes that might allow him to escape from the corner that he's unwittingly boxed himself into. So rather than admitting what I just said, God expects us to admit that we're helpless, that it's hopeless, that we're in a corner we can't get out of, that our sin is going to condemn us for sure and there's no hope. And then turning to God on, and placing ourselves in His hands for His mercy and His grace, we allow Him to do the work that we couldn't do. And rather than do all of that, which is the repentance that precedes faith, what He does instead is, a second time, He tries to trap Jesus by saying, Who is my neighbor? And, and you can get a sense here of what He's doing, Right? Well, Jesus, how can I possibly know who my neighbor is? I mean, is my neighbor just the person who lives next to me? Or maybe it's the person who lives two houses down from me? Or what about the house on the street across the street? Or what about the, the block down the road? Or is it just the Jews? Is it just the Jews in my city? Maybe it's just the Jews in my tribe. How far do I have to go, Jesus? I mean, this is an impossible question. It's too ambiguous. How could we possibly do something we can't understand? It's an impossible requirement. Who is my neighbor? So he's arguing from the standpoint that without that definition, it's impossible for him to be considered guilty. I can't be held to a standard that's so unreasonable. Who is my neighbor? That's the kind of nonsense that the Jewish leaders would batter, banter back and forth with. It's the kind of question that unbelievers have loved to ask God from the very beginning as an excuse for how I can be held guilty for my actions. It's the same kind of question that was asked in Genesis 3.1. 
when Satan looks at the woman and says, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? What an unreasonable requirement. Do you really expect that? How can we be held to such unreasonable standards? My personal favorite of our day and time is, Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? It's stupid. It's nonsense. It has no bearing on our faith. Its answer is irrelevant whichever way you go, right? Its purpose is not to divine truth. Its purpose is not to understand God's nature and character. Its purpose is not to build us, bring us closer to Him. There's no genuine curiosity. It's merely intended to puff us up and to diminish God at the same time. It's a veiled attack, whether it's intended that way or not. But God's foolishness is infinitely wiser than man's wisdom. So look at what Jesus does as He deftly answers the lawyer's question. He tells this famous story of the Samaritan. You'll remember what we taught, I hope, about Samaritans a few weeks back, about how much they were despised, how the inhabitants of Samaria were so despised by Jews because they saw themselves to be Jew, though they really weren't, and the Jews saw them as traitors, as imposters rather than true Jews. And therefore, they were bitter enemies. The Samaritans arguably were greater enemies to the Jew than even the Romans because at least the Romans didn't try to pretend they were Jew. That was an even greater offense to a Jew. So in the parable, you have this victim of a robbery on this road from Jerusalem, we're told, to Jericho. It's actually a famous road in in biblical times, and this road was well-traveled, but it was treacherous, not just because it was a winding road through mountain passes, but also because it was frequented by thieves. It was quite common for people to be attacked on this road. So it would have been like us saying, a man goes down a dark alley in the bad part of some big city. I mean, you would just understand that the circumstances were ripe for this kind of attack. And then this poor man, as he's attacked and beaten, left half for dead, is come upon by a priest. Now, the fact that this priest that comes upon this man goes out of his way to even avoid getting near him, crossing over to the other side of the road, I want you to imagine a very steep ravine. I want you to imagine a very treacherous road where just leaving the road to go to another side is itself a very big effort, a risk on the part of the priest. So in the parable here, what Jesus is illustrating is how far out of his way the priest went to avoid having to come upon the man. And and you understand why, right? If you come upon him on a very narrow road, you can't can't say you didn't see him. You can't ignore him. You, You can't pretend he wasn't there. You have to actually be confronted with him. And then if you walk past him, well, you look guilty. You look uncaring. You look, you know, you look like you have no compassion. But if you're on the other side of a deep ravine, you know, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't get to you over there. Hope somebody can help you. You know, you can at least feign some helplessness over it. Some sense of, well, I can't be expected to help him. How could I even get to him? That's how much the priest went out of his way to avoid having to help this man. And the fact that he's also a priest says a lot. Because, we'll, and we'll look at that more in a minute, but of all men in the nation of Israel, the priest was in many ways the kind of person in their society that you would look upon you know, any minister of the gospel in our society. I mean, you would hope that of all the people you might run into on the road, the one who would be most likely to show compassion and help a, a person like this would be someone in the, in the ministry, right? I mean, that would be our hope. It doesn't always play out that way, of course, but, you know, you would think that person would be the kind of person who would have enough care and concern to stop. So for them, a priest is very much in that same role. So to see a priest do this is a pretty damning kind of statement. Then you get this Levite. Now, Levi, remember, is somebody from the tribe of Levi, which is where the priests themselves came from. 
But it's just to point out that not everyone who came out of the tribe of Levi was, in fact, a priest, though they came out of the priestly tribe. They would still have perhaps served in the temple in some kind of other role, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were a priest. But as a Levite, he still would have been seen as the consummate Jew. This is the typical archetype Jew, the best of the Jews, if you will, coming out of the Levite tribe, a man who epitomized an upright, proper Jewish person. And yet, just like the priest, he did no better. Finally, a Samaritan, we're told, stops. Now, what we haven't been told up to this point in this parable, what we're never told is the identity of the victim. But I want you to consider that it's not terribly important to the story, but it was probably not mentioned because it would have been assumed. To the crowd Jesus was teaching, anyone who's leaving Jerusalem, going anywhere, what's your assumption? A man leaves San Antonio and goes, you're thinking they're from San Antonio. You think they're at least Texan, right? You don't imagine a New Yorker. Whenever you pictured in your mind, you probably just assumed somebody who was from San Antonio. Likewise, the assumption of this crowd is a Jew. A Jew on the road is attacked, and two consummate, upstanding, you know, upright members of Jewish society turn their back on him. But then there's a Samaritan, a man who is the enemy of the Jew. And we're told he stops. This is similar to what we hear in Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, You have heard it was said to you, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard that before, right? He goes on to say, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do you not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here we are back to that issue of doing the law perfectly. What would it look like to be perfect in this regard? as the Heavenly Father, rather, is perfect, it would be to stop and aid this kind of a person. An enemy of yours, but nevertheless, a neighbor. And when Jesus describes the great lengths in this parable that this Samaritan goes to, and you can see it's almost over the top. I mean, it's like on and on and on. At the point where you and I would have stopped, there's more. Right? We would have helped on the side of the road until we got him to the end. Few of us would have stayed a night with him. And few of us would have thought to keep paying for him to be there when we're gone. And few of us would have thought to come back and check on him later to make sure the bill was paid. You know, it's like everything you and I would have done, there's one thing more, it would seem. I challenge you all to consider whether any of us would have gone as far as this man goes in the story. It goes to show that no matter how good we think we're being, there's always more we could do. And therefore, being a loving neighbor to somebody probably goes far beyond what we normally consider it to be. And... As Jesus presents this story, he obliterates any concept of a limit on who our neighbor is. The lawyer stood up with a question of, where's the line? What's the limit to who my neighbor is? Jesus effectively does away with any possible line. The lawyer was so busy trying to draw these boundaries that he missed the point. And in one moment, Jesus erases that line and he says, the neighbor is anyone who needs us. In fact, it is the least of those we would consider worthy of our attention. It is our enemy. It is everyone. I mean, if the Samaritan under these circumstances can be considered a neighbor to the Jew, then tell me how anyone is not your neighbor. Pick some circumstance that wouldn't mean you're dealing with your neighbor. It makes everyone on the earth your neighbor. If the person we hate, the person who is our enemy is to be our neighbor then how much more so the person living next door? How much more so the person at the grocery store that you don't know or the car next to you in traffic that cuts you off? How many of those people then are not your neighbor? They all have to be if your sworn enemy is your neighbor. There's no limit. Now, how well do we love those people? 
That's the, there you come back now to the impossibility of keeping that second commandment. How well did you love that person who cut you off in traffic? How many of you wouldn't hope to see them pulled over on the side of the road with a cop a mile up? How many of you aren't hoping they don't get in an accident so you can look at them as you drive by, right? That's not the Samaritan way to do it, right? I mean, we all feel that way. That shows you the impossibility of trying to do what God says you have to do if your desire is to earn your own salvation. And so in doing this, in giving this example, Jesus boxes that lawyer back in where he has nowhere to go. So we're going to end, as you look at the rest of this chapter with me, these last five verses, we're going to end with another interesting story. Now, we're going to put all these together because if you're not careful, it just looks like Luke is tacking these things on in a random way. But they're really all part of a single concept, a single topic in chapter 10. Look at verse 10, or chapter 10, rather, verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. While there's probably a lot we could say about this exchange, it's actually quite easy to fit this into the larger context if you just look at it with me for a moment. Think about this. The chapter began, as we looked at chapter 10, with this look at these two chief commandments. In response to the question, how do I obtain eternal life, we we got into this discussion of these two commandments. And in the beginning part of this discussion, Jesus gives the example of the parable of the Samaritan. And in that parable, he illustrates the second of the two commandments, right? He illustrates the love your neighbor as yourself piece. Now look at what he's doing in this one. Now we get an illustration of the first commandment. Love your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Now we're seeing him illustrate the other half. We call this a chiasm in Scripture where you go into an issue and come out in an opposite pattern. So we talked about the first commandment, then the second. We come out by illustrations of the second and then the first. That's a very common pattern in Jewish writing. Let's look at the parable or the, the story of Mary and Martha just for a moment and we'll see how it illustrates that first commandment. Martha, we're told, welcomes Jesus into her home. Martha, the name Martha, in, in, in the, it's, it's a Greek text, but it's a Jewish name. It actually means mistress. Mistress in the sense of the woman who runs the house. And so it would make sense that she would be overseeing the preparations of this dinner. And she has a sister, Mary, who would have been expected, obviously, to assist her, her, own, her sister, Martha, at the work that she's doing. They would have expected to work together. But Mary is so captivated, captivated by what Jesus is teaching that she can't leave his feet. She sits there at his feet listening to his word. And she's effectively neglecting her sister because of it. I mean, in the cultural sense of it, she was wrong. If you think of it strictly from cultural perspectives, she should have been up helping her sister. And that would have been the normal duty for her to do. And so Martha is, you can kind of see it in your mind, right? She's working, she's looking back, wondering when her sister's going to join her and getting a little frustrated about it. Looking back, when is, you know, maybe making eye contact, maybe trying to get her attention, not wanting to embarrass her in front of the visitor. Finally, she can't take it anymore. Finally, she's... Not only frustrated at 
uh, Mary, but she's, as the text would tell me anyway, she's starting to get a little frustrated with Jesus because as a teacher of the law, he ought to know that she's doing wrong and should have scolded her himself, should have shooed her away, encouraged her to do the right thing. So Martha's feeling a little wounded here. You know, not only is Mary not doing the right thing, but she's feeling like Jesus really hasn't come to her aid the way he should have, not done his role properly. And at some point, obviously, she can't take it anymore, so she makes this biting comment. And what's, a, what's interesting to me is the comment's really directed more against Jesus than against Mary. She corrects him for, I guess, distracting Mary and, and for not expecting her to do her duty. And Jesus responds in a very gentle way. I love the way he does it here. I love the way Luke records it. Martha, Martha. And that just, just brings across not only the empathy, but also a recognition on his part of just how wrong she was, how, how, how she just didn't get it. He says, you're, you're so worried about so many things. His comments to me leave a sense that Martha was one of these people that must have just always worried about something. Nothing was perfect. If, Mar- if Mary had been helping her, something else would have been wrong. She just maybe had that sense about her, always troubled by cares of the day, always troubled that Something wasn't going to go right. Always busy, maybe. Always demands on her time. Always something that got in the way, and she was always concerned about it. Never enough time, it seems, to just attend to her relationship with God. Which is, of course, Jesus' point. He's sitting there shaking his head, maybe, when he spoke those words. And what a shame it was for Martha. I mean, if she could only have understood what was wrong with her priorities. Martha, Jesus says, only one thing is necessary. Only one thing is necessary. There's only one thing you need to worry about. There's only one thing that deserves this much energy and concern. And it's the good part. It's the part that Mary has chosen. It's sitting at Jesus' feet, in her case literally, in our case spiritually speaking, and listening to his word. Can it really be that simple? I mean, is it really just that simple for all the worry we bring into our life today, for all the things that cause us concern? And, and we all share the same ones. I, I would venture to say that if I took an inventory of your life and of my life and we listed all the things we care about, all the concerns we have in our life, I bet our top five would match. I mean, they'd be spoken in different words, but it would be what? Money, health, family relationship issues, right? It would be, it would be basically the same five things that every man has ever lived has ever had to deal with in one form or another. And we would probably, if we did that inventory and and assessed how much time we spend worrying, both in our minds and in our activities, we would consume a 24-hour day, absent maybe some sleep mixed in, with very little time for anything else on that list. I mean, that's how most people spend their day. And you might look at that as really what Martha is about. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say Martha is effectively giving us in a moment an example of that kind of life where our worries are misdirected and so we don't find time for what really matters. And what Jesus turns to us and turns to Martha and says, is, you know, there's only one thing that matters. And I have my firm conviction, and I've said this in other times, other places, for every problem we list on that inventory, the first solution ought to be doing what Mary did. So do you have a job problem? Do you have a relationship problem? Do you have a health problem? Well, make sure the first thing on your list in terms of my response to my problem is to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his word. And it's not because the knowledge necessarily of what you'll learn is going to then be applied by you in fixing your problem. I'm not suggesting that because you study the word, oh, now I understand how to get that sales account. 
Now I understand how I am going to you know, fix that problem I have with my back. No, I, it doesn't have to be that way. My, th- my thinking, my own experience is that supernaturally, God provides for those things because he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all those other things will be added unto you. Maybe not exactly the way we want. I'm not saying we'll get everything we want. No good father gives their children everything they want. But what I am saying is that for all our effort in trying to obtain the things that bother us to such a great degree, what Christ says to Martha is, stop worrying about the things that don't matter eternally. Spend your time where I need you to spend your time. I'll worry about the rest of the stuff. You'll get whatever I need you to get to do the work I have you to do. And then our response in that is to be content. To be content with whatever he gives us. So I would argue that we do that here, at least in principle, at least as a, as a uh, cornerstone to why we even meet. Because we believe, I hope we all agree, that hearing the word of Christ is the primary, it perhaps is the only thing to seek after and to be concerned about in the midst of worship, in the midst of fellowship, in the midst of Bible study, in a home study, in a home de- uh, devotion time, whatever we choose to do. And let God take care of the rest and then do as he directs. I'm not promoting passive life living. I'm not saying lay in your bed all day. I'm saying that as God directs, you'll do, but... But it will be after you've sought him and he's then said, okay, now I have a plan. Here's what I want you to do. The good part, we're told, will never be taken away, which implies, among other things, that all these other things in our life that we worry about, they will be taken away one day. The things we cling to and spend our time on, those are passing. The good part is not. Jesus and his word is eternal. They bring contentment, they bring satisfaction, they bring ultimately healing and spiritual growth, and they are the reason we have eternal life. I don't know what else we really need, though we certainly convince ourselves that we do. I'm no different. I'm preaching to myself here every bit as much as to anyone else. It is convicting the same for both, and it really is just that simple. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish today and call up Rick for one last worship song. Father, I hope the word, Father, has been spoken according to your will and by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that it has, Father. I pray that where perhaps the teaching was not according to your will, that you would remove it from the minds of those who've heard and replace it with the truth to your glory. But, Father, where the word has been spoken properly and where it has had its intended purpose, I pray, Father, for a confidence, more than anything, Father, a courage and a confidence in those who have heard this word to to take the risk. Because, Father, we do feel it is a risk. We do feel ourselves risking something as we let go and turn it over to you. We do feel, Father, that we are, by the world's standards, being foolish. Not to plan and to invest our time and effort in all the things the world calls important. We feel, though, as we've made ourselves, Father, um, someone who's exposed, who's, who's now out on a limb, because we will not spend time, as Martha in the story expected, working our own solutions, but rather, Father, time spent in your word. But we know, Father, that your word is true, it is unchanging, it is the truth that we can depend on. And so, Father, I pray for the courage to live out what we've heard today, to take upon ourselves, Father, a desire to study your word, to understand it, to spend time in your presence, even at your feet, as Mary did. Not because the information, Father, will solve our problems by itself. Not because there's some answer to some burning question, though you may choose to provide it. But merely, Father, because we desire a relationship with you. And we know, Father, the power of that relationship 
We know, Father, the power that you can bring to any circumstance according to your will. We trust you, Father, not ourselves. We pray, Father, that that courage would be built up in this week to come so that in every decision we make, the big ones and the small ones, we would choose first, Father, to seek the kingdom of God and trust you to provide all that we need. And in living out a life that way, Father, we might be a witness. We might be that person that someone else notices and says, what's different about you? And we might have an opportunity, Father, in that moment to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for Rick and for Jose in service in the Word and in fellowship and in worship. Thank you, Father, for the provision of this building and all that goes into our meeting. Let it be again next week, Father, the, the same. Let us meet again according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.